The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, November 16th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, with my guests from the Holland Clinic and Center, Dr. Michael Montico and Troy Fry. And I hope that Troy Fry will be joining us shortly. Dr. Michael Montico is the parent of a child with autism and serves as medical advisor to Holland Biomedical Clinic located in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Troy Fry is a board-certified behavior analyst and the clinical program director at Holland Center. For the past 20 years, he has worked with children and adults with moderate to severe developmental disabilities in public schools, private schools, and residential programs in North America. Welcome, Dr. Montico. And uh, Mr. Fry, are you with us? Okay, so I hope that uh, Troy Fry will be joining us uh, when we come back from the next break. So, Dr. Montico, I'd like to thank you for being here with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I'll start off with the signature question, what is autism? (laughs) Well, as we like to concentrate uh, in the practice, we don't necessarily treat autism. We treat all the things that cause it. So, by definition, as a lot of the uh, listeners are well aware autism is dis, uh, defined as children having uh, struggles specifically uh, with behavioral issues, communication issues, and trouble with socialization. Uh, but our focus is always what are causing those uh, difficulties to begin with, and that's how we concentrate our treatment. Okay. So we're making a distinction here. We're, we're looking at symptoms. And then when you say cause, are you talking about the underlying physiological conditions that underpin an autism diagnosis, or ultimately what even causes those? And that's the million-dollar question. As I talk to parents about uh, the quote-unquote biomedical approach, one of the things we lay as a foundation is the fact that there's no such thing as a genetic epidemic. And I think, unfortunately, that's what we see a lot in in the media. And even, I think, that the general medical public believes we just have this uh, uprising about autism and it's, quote-unquote, genetic. Everything's genetic um, to some extent, but I think what we're really dealing with here is an epigenetic problem. Some people even question the increase. So before we can even use the word uh, epidemic, some people are even questioning the increase, and I know that, uh, as we said in the bio, Troy Fry's been working with children and adults with moderate to severe developmental disabilities in public schools, private schools, and residential programs for the past 20 years. Are things different? Have things changed over the past couple of decades from when, say, you and I were kids or Troy and you and I were kids? 
I don't think there's any question. I, I always, right off the bat, uh, do uh, speak about my bias. I do have a child with autism, so obviously people like myself who have a child are going to be more aware. One of the things I've done in, in conferences to kind of prove uh, the number of uh, autistic cases, if you will, that are out there is to ask people, you know, kind of a, a show of hands, how many people are aware or have met somebody with autism. And, of course, the whole room is there to hear a, a talk on autism, so typically they've had some type of contact in this day and age. But when you start asking them when they made that contact, it's unbelievable to see the, the differences. And when you, when you try to look for people that have known somebody with autism for 20 or 30 years, the number is much, much less. So the question then becomes, are we just diagnosing it more often and we were missing everybody 20 to 30 years ago? Well, there's been all sorts of studies um, showing that that's not the case. And uh, in some studies specifically, they would say, well, geez, if we weren't calling it autism 30 years ago, we must have been calling it something else. We weren't calling these children neurotypical. But if you look at rates of mental retardation or cerebral palsy and some other things that may have been confused with autism, you would expect those rates to go way, way down if autism was going way, way up, and that's just not the case. Right. You've brought up the great point that it's been ruled out. It's not diagnostic substitution. It's not population shift. shift. It's not any of those things. This is a real and true increase, a real and true epidemic, um, even according to if we look at the latest CDC statistics. It's just really alarming. And um, last week I interviewed Kim Stagliano, the author of All I Can Handle, I'm No Mother Teresa, A Life Raising Three Daughters with Autism, and she uh, talks to people who've been in the field for years, teachers and therapists, others, and these uh, old-timers, if I may use that term, have have noticed the same thing. Something has definitely changed. Why are so many children sick? So, uh, Dr. Mike, what does the biomedical approach to autism spectrum disorders aim to address? Well, the first thing I always stress is the fact that this has to be a partnership. In fact, um, you know, sometimes I, I use the, the um, kind of inspirational quote of partnering with parents to reach your child's potential. I think we have to make clear that this is a very, very complicated uh, condition, and partnering with parents is going to be one of the keys. What we first try to address is to tell the child's story. Unfortunately, in traditional medicine, and we don't have to talk about all the, the shortcomings of that field, um, you know, doctors are expected to, to take a history, do a physical, and come up with a plan, maybe a 15-minute time slot, but generally they have five to eight minutes uh, to make some of those um, recommendations, if you will. So one of the things we, we really try to do is understand what has happened from birth or maybe even prior to birth all the way to the day we're seeing the child because we have to, we've used the metaphor before of unraveling or uh, peeling away layers of the onion. We really have to do that to get down to the core of what's quote-unquote causing the autism. Again, autism is just symptoms we see. We have to dig down into what the problems are that are, that are causing these behaviors. Right, and I'd, I'd like to observe that the same practitioners who will respect you, our listeners as a parent, will respect your child's underlying biomedical condition. So if, if you're with a, a practitioner who does not seem to respect you as a parent, as an expert on your child, that practitioner is probably not going to respect that your child's autism diagnostic label um, is underpinned by legitimate physiological is, uh, issues. 
that can be addressed biomedically. So, so Dr. Mike, you're looking at genetic, epigenetic, and biochemical issues that are the underlying causes of our children's symptoms, but many listeners may not really understand what epigenetics refers to. Yep, it's a great question. If um, and what I tell people if if genetics is if genetics is like the blueprint, epigenetics is like building the house. So uh, we're all made with DNA. We all have DNA in us, and then our DNA serves as the blueprint for many uh, body systems to take over and really really write the book, write the story. And unfortunately, uh, insults in these children's lives can occur shortly after consumption. Um, in the mother's womb, shortly after birth, or anywhere beyond that, that kind of acts to turn genes either on or off. And then we start to see kind of the, the snowball rolling downhill, where once some of those things start gaining momentum, it uh, sometimes can be very, very uh, difficult and uh, confusing to get it turned around. So what are the things that we need to turn around? Can you tell us about the vicious cycles underlying the diagnostic label of autism? So we can go on and on about the number of different uh, vicious cycles, but um, there's oftentimes four that we concentrate on, methylation, detoxification, uh, gastrointestinal or quote-unquote gut issues, and then immune system dysregulation. All right. So the the children who are diagnosed on the autism spectrum have underlying metabolic problems related to all of these? or Not always all of them, and it gets very difficult when you're juggling all of them, but, it, but it's not uncommon that you have bits and pieces of all these different vicious cycles going on. One of the things that's difficult in determining uh, where kids are having issues with specific vicious cycles and is sometimes we don't uh, always have the the science in place. We don't always have the studies in place to prove that certain markers correlate with symptoms or signs on physical exam. And part of that becomes uh, the fact that we haven't been looking to help these children for long enough. We don't have enough physicians looking at it, but uh, through works with people like yourself, Autism One, um, and uh, many conferences, obviously, we have more and more doctors looking at these problems. And I, I can tell you, even from the last few years that I've been more intensely involved, we're definitely making progress. And mainstream medicine is actively opposed to such studies being done, and that's this is a vicious cycle in itself, because the powers that be are opposed to these studies being done, and then they use that to say, well, there isn't enough study. Uh, but researchers who are diligently looking for answers for our children, they've had their funding cut, et cetera, when they've tried to delve into real underlying causes. And we need to know cause so that we know how to fix what's happened. Any comments on that? Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought up mainstream medicine. And um, I've spent a lot of years studying to be a physician. I I got trained in, quote-unquote, mainstream medicine and, quite frankly, still practice it. What's so challenging, sometimes physicians have a horribly difficult time to look at a parent, whether the child has autism or not, and say, you know what, I just don't know. And that's, and that's critical, and we, we have to change that paradigm. More and more, I hope, the doctors who are open-minded um, are able to sit across from a parent and say, geez, I'm not sure, but let's find out together. And that's in uh, biomedical medicine as well. You mentioned specifically about mainstream medicine being opposed. 
I think a lot of times in mainstream medicine, we, we just don't know. And I think sometimes doctors are uh, unwilling and unknowing participants, um, but we can go on and on and on to talk about some of the other powers, whether they be insurance companies, drug companies, that you might say, boy, they seem directly opposed to this, and I'd have to agree with you. In terms of the research, we're seeing more research, but one of the concerns I have, although we have to start somewhere, is a lot of the research is being done on the bench, you know, whether it be at, at Stanford or some other university, which is great, but to get that transfer of information from the bench into the clinic is, uh, is a large challenge. And, you know, Dr. Mike, it's not just mainstream doctors not saying, I don't know, but also vehemently refuting that parents do know. And with that, let's go into break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Mike Montico, and hopefully Troy Fry will join us. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. I am back with my guests from the Holland Clinic and Center, Dr. Michael Montico and Troy Fry. And Troy Fry is with us now. As a reminder, he is a board-certified behavior analyst and the clinical program director at Holland Center. Troy, thanks for joining us. And we'd like to pick up with you answering, should biomedical interventions be done before, after, or at the same time as educational and adjunct therapies? 
Well, I, you know, I think to the degree that you know we um, here at the Holland Center tried to. There's so many variables that you know you like to control for, so you can you know determine you know what's influencing you know what part of the program. But we we tend to take kids that come um, you know a variety of ages, a variety of needs, a variety of challenges, and so we um, you know as as much as proceeding. In, in in some cases, one over the other to have that um, you know sense of sense of control, so that you can you know use that information to kind of predict and to go forward. I I think we um, establish um, work real hard initially to establish a a baseline behaviorally of um, when a youngster comes to us across a variety of dimensions, from you know from from rel- you know, uh, common learning tendencies and, and skills to um, things that get in the way from um, certain types of uh, tendencies and, and challenging behaviors to um, looking, you know, more thoroughly over the past couple of years collaborating with the clinic on some of the um, other markers that might be relevant to how, why a kid's doing what he's doing. And so I, I, I think um, in some cases we've, you know, tried to be um, you know, patient and withhold some things while we establish a baseline. But I think, in in the nature of of, of where we want to go, I think um, we have found that we 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 often proceed. I I think um, together, and in 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 where that might be limiting. Um, you know, following you know Dr. Mike's guidance in some cases when we're trying to establish um, or he's looking at some of the behavioral. Um, the objective things you can look behaviorally at and establish in a baseline while he um, and, and others in the clinic work to try to influence certain, um, you know, not only the genetic um, changes but the behavioral changes. We, we, we wait on those and, and we, we work through those when it's prudent. Um, and I think in other cases, um, you know, we are proceeding. One of the things that I've tried to do is, is establish that predictable um, uh, learning environment, and so that when changes are made, um, you know the, that that the clinic might be making, we have objective ways to evaluate um, their their influence. Um, and so, I think we 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 very quickly try to establish you know order and, and work with the clinic to say this this may be a youngster who has some significant um, needs that. You know, waiting while you establish a, a behavioral baseline, if you will, is is probably not the right path to go. Given um, it may not be accurate, it may not be useful, or it's more prudent to to try to to fix some of these underlying issues. That if if that was established, I think you're looking at a more a more useful data set to build the program around. If if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, also. Talk to Dr. Mike on this. So, Dr. Mike, what do you see as the best advantage of using an integrative approach where biomedical intervention and educational behavioral communication therapy are used together to complement one another and uh, exponentially increase the power of each other? Well, without question, behavioral therapy is where it's at. I think we need to be very careful in uh in biomed, obviously, it's an, the biomed side is an important adjunct, but at the end of the day, no matter how healthy we make these children, they're still brain injured. 
Um, I, I think the story of a child who, quote-unquote, recovers biomedically is very rare, and I, and I think we need to stress that because there's a lot of parents out there that get very, very discouraged when their child isn't the one who magically recovers from uh, starting a biomedical pro- program. In addition, uh, I like to say that, that biomed simply makes the bed for the behavioral therapies to sleep in. I think uh, another analogy I'll use is that when neurotypical children are ill, they do not learn well. And when autistic children are ill, they even have additional uh, challenges to deal with. So without question, they, they should be done in conjunction with each other. What's so exciting about Holland is they're being done side by side. So although we haven't quite cracked that code 100%, we're working on it. And something as simple as knowing when you prescribe a certain uh, supplement prescription, if you will, you're fairly confident that child's going to be getting those supplements in because the staff is is doing that work while the child's at Holland and it's being documented. So while that's just a one step in the right direction, the opportunities that uh, in going forward are are endless in terms of, of what we can be doing to to integrate these two programs into the future. That's great. So I like the way that the uh, staff members at Holland are working together in that if a new biomedical intervention is started, say, for example, um, individualized targeted supplement therapy uh, done under the oversight of the physician, that the the folks on the uh, educational behavioral side are able to say how this biomedical intervention improved that child's performance. And, you know, I know that... Um, Biomed allows a child to move forward to learn, say, with concentration and attention. And um, when, for example, their gut pain is resolved, their, their GI tract pain is resolved in their esophagus or their tummy, wherever, they are able to stop being self-injurious and they are able to sit down and to learn. Would you think that's a correct observation, Dr. Mike? Absolutely. I mean, we could go on and on about specifics, but um, again, when we look at signs of illness that any physician would say, geez, this child's ill, he constantly has diarrhea, he appears to have gut pain. If we can help some of those things, we're going to help dramatically. And then we get into what would be more specific to biomed. And one easy example is B12. If a child is in huge need of B12, which is a very important methylator, sometimes eye contact changes dramatically, relatively quickly. It doesn't happen in every child, but if it happens to be uh, the right trigger of some of these biochemical pathways and we can improve attention, you can only imagine how much that would help Troy and his staff as they're trying to get uh, a child to sit attentively for maybe only five or ten minutes. Uh, if a child, if we can improve their eye contact, obviously that will allow for uh, uh, better uh, communication and coordination with the behavioral staff. Right. So the biomed allows the child to move forward to learn and is, as a matter of fact, also humane and merciful because it allows the child not to be in pain. And then the behavioral educational communication side, those staff members help the child catch up on the precious learning time that they had lost. So, um, Troy, earlier in the show, Dr. Mike and I were talking about how things have changed over the past 20 years that you've been in the field working with children and adults, and what are the changes that you've seen in the health of children and the functionality of children over the past decades? You know, I, uh, 
um, it's it's been kind of a an interesting um, you know since Holland has invested um, a good deal of resources in um, in, in Dr. Mike and establishing the clinic with with Jennifer Larson, the founder, to really uh, because I'll be the first to admit that you know my background is 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 what you read in terms of some of the the reasons people don't always agree is when you start looking for um you know behavioral you know things that you can see things that you can manipulate things that you can imagine things that you can um you know you know control to try to in, in looking at the long um you know uh, um catalog of evidence-based research in in the field of behavior analysis to develop effective programming for these kids who are who are coming with increasing uh, increasingly complicated um you know histories and, and and developmental um, challenges. We've, we've, uh, I think, over the past, and so before I, I go on to some of the things that we've seen, I, I think it's been, you know, I, I'm learning quite a bit. You know, I think it's a commitment to, um, you, you know, trying to understand things better. I think in my practice, you know, today, um, November 16, 2010, compared to even, even I'd go back three years to be honest with you, and looking at some of the stuff that I'm learning to understand more about and appreciate more about from from my own you know health um, history to to you know how we program for these kids and how we're sensitive to some of these things. And I think, like Dr. Mike says, really an emphasis on looking a little bit further at some things and trying to make sure that a kid is well and, and, and that you are looking at when you're programming for things that. Uh, you know all the assessments that we've learned to do to look at not only the standard kind of assessments to see what where maybe a youngster is challenged and what kind of barriers do we need to 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 remove so that the the, the child can learn because I think that's very important that's an important development um, looking at retrospectively the need for youngsters to many of them be at the Holland Center as an example there's We'll take kids, as I mentioned, I, I believe a little bit earlier. We, we have kids of different ages and, and different dis, diff, different degrees of, of challenges, and, and the only restriction in terms of our acceptance is can we be effective with those kids. And so we, we, get, a, we get a huge variety, and not that the spectrum doesn't have that equally, but, uh, to, but to, to do that we've gotten very good at assessing those barriers you know, uh, that, that do get in the way in attending and, and focus and, and, and persistence and, and ability to sustain and task, those kind of things that are really um, are essential to, 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 to learning and to using those skills that have been acquired. And so appreciating some of the, some of the I'm not going to say it's new science because I think obviously the medical piece, but the appreciation of it or the understanding of it, um, I think has changed the way we look at several of our kids. And certainly I think my goal as as an effective practitioner in, in behavior analysis, you know, now into 20 years ago, is do it, do what the research is suggesting. And I think the real exciting thing that we've tried to do at the Holland Center, and with the clinic, is to develop some of that research and try to, you know, kids are very unique kids, as Dr. Mike's probably alluded to, or certainly would that they come very differently. And and there's, you've seen one kid, you've seen 20 kids with autism, you've seen 20 kids with autism, and trying to, try kind of piece out those things that are common. And that we can use for treatment decisions with other kids, things that we have established as if these things are occurring, we need to do these kind of things and trying to generate that um, that 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 base of research for which other people can see that 
Um, you know, in some kids, not every situation, just like behaviorally planning-wise, not every kid, you know, needs 40 hours. Some kids need, you know, I, I, I believe in doing things effectively and efficiently, and hours are only one indicator of being able to be effective. And, and so the degree to which the biomed has influenced kids or, or helped kids or is a critical component, uh, I think is individual. And I think I've learned through this practice the complications at which kids are coming to, the more things that we're discovering about you know, autism and the things that uh, cause it, that the occasion for it, influence it, that if we can make that part of our plan, and, and my commitment is to objectifying that being the behavior analyst that I'm trained to be is take as much data as the clinic needs to support that change. All um, right. And when we come back from break, we will um, discuss some of those things that help the educational side from the biomedical side, uh, getting back to talking about vitamin and mineral deficiencies, methylation, and more. Back here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On mind, brain, and body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Most chronic health problems are caused by the interaction between genetic susceptibility and environmental exposure. This was defined 10 years ago by the Centers for Disease Control. Join Dr. Robin Bernhoft for 21st Century Medicine. We will cover the whole spectrum of chronic illness and little-known medical treatments that are being used to make you healthier. 21st Century Medicine airs live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're 
back with Dr. Michael Montico and Troy Fry from the Holland Clinic and Center in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And during the break, Dr. Mike was making an observation uh, about our kids and parallels with other maladies. And Dr. Mike, I think let's pick up with that um, in a little bit after we talk more about some of the metabolic and vitamin mineral issues with the kids. Would that be okay? That would be great. Great. So how and why do we identify and address vitamin and mineral deficiencies? Well, again, I'd like to get back uh, in, in a way to kind of structure uh, my brain around these things. I get back to the vicious cycles. Um, and not that we look at the vicious cycles independently, um, but I think it helps to be able to focus on what we're working on biomedically. So to answer your question directly, what about vitamins and minerals? We, we sometimes forget that in biochemistry we need point A to get to point B. Well, the materials that drive all those different processes are typically vitamins. They're either enzymes or what we call coenzymes to allow those um, different processes to take place. And a lot of times uh, with autistic children, just like a lot of neurotypical children, a lot of the, those processes can be broken. And I, very, I make it very, very clear to parents, oftentimes we're not always dealing with deficiency, we're dealing with dependency. For instance, B12 is a driver of a process we call methylation. Methylation drives detoxification. In my neurotypical patient population, I see loads of people who respond favorably to B12, but if you looked at their actual level, they wouldn't be uh, technically described as deficient. They're just dependent on a greater amount. So to pick up on one of Troy's comments that if you've seen one child with autism, you see, you've seen one child with autism, that's absolutely the truth, and that's why we have to treat these, uh, these people as uh, individuals. All right. When you're talking about dependency on B12, and I'm not sure whether you're talking about methylcobalamin or any form of B12, let's clarify that first. Sure. Uh, you know, typically is methylcobalamin. There's situations where certain children will respond better to another form, such as hydroxycobalamin. But usually we're using a methylcobalamin. But again, for all the listeners out there who, don't, uh, who aren't autistic themselves or don't have a loved one with autism, uh, B12 is an incredible vitamin. And what most of mainstream medicine doesn't understand, but they should, is that as we mature, and especially if we get into our 40s and 50s, we lose the ability to absorb oftentimes B12 as well as we should because uh, a specific factor in the gut called intrinsic factor doesn't work as well as it should. And again, I'm of the position that we just need a whole lot more of it in the year 2010 than maybe we did in 1960 or 1970 because we live in a toxic world, and I don't think that's very controversial. We know that uh, it's not as safe of an environment um, as it used to be. Yeah, let's pick up with that. You made an observation during the break about parallels with other maladies. So are children with autism more sensitive to environmental toxins, and what do you see as all of the conditions that arise from environmental triggers? I think absolutely children with autism appear to be uh, more sensitive to environmental insult. And there has to be something. There, there's a trigger for autism, as we discussed in the first segment. Uh, this is not a genetic epidemic. There's no such thing. The numbers truly are rising. So I, I truly wish um, a lot of these research dollars would be focusing 
uh, and can be focusing and publishing good information as to what is triggering not only autism but all of these other things, uh, allergies, asthma, autoimmune disease, celiac disease, which without question would be of a great interest in autism with the uh, oftentimes suggested exclusionary diets like gluten-free diet, the number of cases of celiac disease is just exploding over the last uh, decade. Diabetes, recently a study came out to suggest that by 2050, one out of three Americans will be diabetic. And if we don't start understanding environment, and most specifically probably food, um, Americans are going to be in big, big trouble. I think the health of Americans are going downhill rapidly. Unfortunately, based on the fact that we're kind of stuck in this thing called traditional medicine, uh, we're not aware that right before our eyes, a lot of Americans are, are falling ill, not only the most sensitive ones, uh, which are the autistic children. Now, you alluded to the fact that supplementation helps reduce the negative effect of the vicious cycles that you were talking about earlier in the show. How does it do this? Well, again, if we use uh, methylation as a, as a specific uh, example, methylation is uh, the process by which the body moves methyl groups onto different substances to change their activity. 70% of methylation typically goes towards the creation of something called creatine, which is the body's natural energy. So if we just continue along that path, if methylation isn't working, then children aren't able to generate that natural energy source. And if they don't have energy, not only can they not learn, they can't exercise. If they can't exercise, they may not have appropriate muscle mass. And you could see, obviously, how that could affect not only a child's health, but also their learning capability. So when we try to do things biomedically, we might say, wow, this child appears to be deficient or dependent on greater levels of B12. If we can drive that methylation process to work properly, then literally a child may have more energy. Furthermore, methylation is the key to detoxification, which is typically the second vicious cycle we think about. And we can all, I think, relate to the fact that if we're not detoxifying well, we won't be very healthy. No, and correcting deficiencies would be necessary to improve the effectiveness of other biomedical interventions, yes? Absolutely. If, if, we, you know, if we can't methylate and detoxify, um, then we're going to have troubles down the road, and that's why the, the third step I usually think about, although we don't necessarily take them in the same order, is the, the GI system, or what we like to call it is the gut. Now, did we... Did we def- Fine. Do you think methylation well enough yet for listeners? I, you know, methylation is complicated. Unfortunately, there's not a simple, simple way to describe it. But I think, again, the, um, the biochemistry of methylation, it's more important what it does. When methylation is working, children can create energy. They can create serotonin, which is that hormone that allows us to feel good. They can create melatonin, which is that all-important enzyme for the parents <laughs> to allow their children to sleep well. And again, probably the most important uh, part of methylation is that it drives detoxification. So if that isn't working, literally, our body, when our bodies are working well, our methylation and detoxification cycles that, that work hand-in-hand hand are working thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times each day. So just imagine if that whole system is backed up. Oftentimes we'll use the analogy of a traffic jam. If a child isn't able to create the appropriate detours due to biochemical abnormalities, which are due to epigenetics, um, then we've got this backup of toxicity, and uh, that doesn't serve autistic children or any children well at all. Now, what's the enzyme status of kids on the spectrum? 
You know, when we talk about enzymes, I think we have to differentiate because you have literally thousands, tens of thousands of enzymes in the human body. Uh, One of the specific forms of enzymes we uh, use quite frequently are digestive enzymes. And again, I always have to chuckle when we think about concentrating on autistic kids. Everybody should be kind of thinking about how their body reacts to foods. So digestive enzymes in particular, the theory behind it is we're not all born uh, with the ability to make every enzyme uh, or have the right complement of enzymes in us. So oftentimes we suggest digestive enzymes, which is one of the more common ones that, that parents should be very comfortable using, even on their own before they've kind of hooked up with a, with a biomedical practitioner. Uh, digestive enzymes can help, uh, quote-unquote, fill in the gaps if somebody has a, a lack of a specific enzyme. And how do supplemental digestive enzymes help methylation? Uh, it's a good question. That one might be a little bit more controversial in terms of um, proving the science behind it. Um, in terms of methylation specifically, I always tell people to vision uh, methylation as a box. And the step right before we get to that uh, important step that drives detoxification, there's important enzymes um, that are part of the digestive enzyme uh, supplement that, that do help to drive that pro- process specifically a little bit less directly, if we're not digesting food, that causes all sorts of different issues, maybe not specific with methylation, but that would link more to the difficulties children have in their GI tract. Okay, so let's let's talk about the GI tract. So some of the first things that parents do uh, upon diagnosis while they're waiting to get into uh, a good doctor's office who really knows the biological underpinnings of the autism diagnostic label is they, they bring on a good uh, multivitamin mineral um, with, with, within reason, and uh, as you said, they can start up a digestive enzyme. And after they bring some good supplementation on board, how do they begin to clean up the diet and heal the gut, and what's the rationale for therapeutic diet? Well, there's a lot of rationales. Um, when I talk to people, because one of the answers we typically get from parents is that the diet is just too difficult, meaning an exclusionary diet that might include gluten-free or casein-free. And I talk to parents about multiple different ways that um, having a diet with gluten in it could potentially be um, damaging to a child. The first one we've already hit upon is methylation. Um, there's specific uh, negatives uh, on the methylation cycle or maybe stressing the methylation cycle too much in these children uh, that certain particles uh, could create. The number two effect we hear a lot about is this opiate effect. And the idea, opiates are... Uh, some of the uh, listeners might be more familiar of opiates in terms of narcotics, uh, Tylenol number 3 or Vicodin that you might get after a surgery to be used as a painkiller. And we all feel different uh, when we uh, may have been on these medications in the past, but typically you maybe feel more foggy, not as, uh, not as attentive, so on and so forth. And the concern is, uh, is it possible that in some people that don't digest food particles properly, could those food particles mimic opiates in the human brain? And there's studies to suggest that's exactly what's happening. And then lastly is the idea behind leaky gut. The bottom line is if we don't digest food properly, starting all the way at the lips and mouth, through the stomach, small intestine, large intestine, then our, if we don't digest those foods properly, they're getting too far down the chain. And our immune system, although many of us don't realize this, 60 to 80% of the immune system is in the gut. So if food particles are not being digested properly and getting too far down that GI chain, if you will, uh, then the immune system has access to those food particles, and it shouldn't. 
Now the immune system reacts. That causes inflammation. The gut wall becomes, quote-unquote, leakier. That allows the immune system to react to more foods, causing more inflammation and more leaky gut, and that's that vicious cycle that's so hard to break through. All right, and we will pick up with this when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, manufacturers of fine digestive enzymes that complement your therapeutic diet. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Are you finding fitness a chore? Is health and nutrition too time-consuming for you? It doesn't have to be like that at all. Tune in to Fit Fan for Fun, Lifestyle Fitness with your host, Shira Litwack. Every week, Shira and her guests will show you the fun side of fitness. We'll invite you to send topic suggestions and questions via email, as well as call into the program. You'll get sensible fitness and nutrition advice in a relaxed and fun program. You won't look at fitness as an enemy ever again. Fit Fan for Fun airs every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Michael Montico and Troy Fry from the Holland Clinic and Center in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And Dr. Montico, what's the significance of dysbiosis or imbalance in the gut, and how do you correct it? I'm glad you used the term imbalance. Dysbiosis sometimes can be a confusing term, but all we're talking about is balance in so many of the different ways we, we look at these children. So in the gut, we're supposed to have good bugs, bad bugs, and yeast, and they're supposed to live in harmony, but oftentimes for various reasons, they get out of balance. Okay, and you alluded to the fact earlier that um, with systemic inflammation, such as if bad things are going on in the gut due to 
diet or these bad bugs, um, that you can have gastrointestinal and neurological inflammation, and, and then it ends up affecting the brain. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things we, we talk about is the fact that the, that the gut and brain are intimately connected, and sometimes that's a, that's a hard reach for people to wrap their arms around. Uh, but as I, I like to use the analogy, if, if we sat down and had a couple of do- adult co- cocktails, it may affect you and I differently, but there'd be some effect. Either we'd be uh, more happy, we may be more angry, um, we might have more laughter, but there's an effect, and that's because the gut and the brain are, are affected and they are kind of uh, in- intertwined. So unfortunately, uh, when we get gut inflammation, uh, that same blood that is servicing the GI tract is servicing the brain, and in, we know uh, there's inflammation on the brain, and that's one of the exciting areas of research is where actually what we need to do more of and an exciting area of research is looking specifically at, at markers that might clue us in on uh, inflammation or oxidative stress, and then we need to be able to prove that we can change that through biomedical intervention. Yep, Absolutely. Now, you've been talking about the children's toxic load. What are some ways that a parent can help reduce their child's toxic load? Well, I think that might be a good segue into something we were talking about, too, uh, about the Holland Center and all the lengths they have gone to make a, a safe haven for children. You know, it starts at the home, and when I, when I send out uh, treatment plans to folks, I always have a section called Go Green uh, and some simple things you can do in the home. First, start in your child's bedroom. That's where a child, hopefully, if the kids are sleeping well, which is always another goal, uh, Children are spending quite a bit of time in the bedroom, so uh, reducing the amount of carpet in the bedroom, which can harbor uh, all sorts of things, including uh, dust mites and and, uh, dust, any types of allergens, of course, Uh, getting rid of uh, stuffed animals that can harbor the same types of things, Uh, having an air purifier with a HEPA filter, making sure children are only drinking uh, purified water, checking your water. Uh, Oftentimes, especially with people uh, on well water, they, they may have specific metal toxicity in their water that's affecting their child. So some of these simple things uh, are important to do. And the next step after the bedroom was always the pantry because uh, it's amazing how many uh, neurotoxins or excitotoxins we're putting in food, in the, in the, not only gluten and casein, but in the form of sauces, gravies, dressings, food add, additives, colors, MSG, aspartame, uh, fake sweeteners, so on and so forth. Okay, and did you want to elaborate upon the environmentally friendly uh, surroundings at the Holland Center? Uh, Well, again, we joked at the break that we need to get uh, Jen Larson uh, in on the last segment here, but uh, Jen, who is the CEO at Holland Center, went uh, to great lengths to make Holland as safe as possible, um, limiting the amount of uh, carpet in certain areas. Uh, people are always uh, greeted by, by a friendly staff who, who tells them immediately to take their shoes off and put these funny little footies on. Uh, the children who are at the center on a daily basis ha- have shoes that are dedicated to Holland, so they're not bringing in uh, toxins from the outside world. And then the surroundings, they make sure they're not... Um, you know, spraying chemicals on the on the bushes or or the grass that the kids are out out playing on, and then obviously when it gets to the food level, uh, the entire Holland Center is um, uh, specifically uh, where the kids are at least. The, the kitchen at the Holland Center is a, a gluten free, uh, casein free uh, facility, so there's no cross contamination. Furthermore, they look for specific allergies, and food has to be screened. Uh, Troy might be able to comment on this too. I, I'm not doing the screening, but. Sc- Food has to be screened by a specific staff member to make sure it, uh, it, it passes the test to avoid things like uh, peanut allergy, for instance. Great. So, Troy, you're not handing out any little artificially 
colored and flavored, sugary, uh, gluten and casein-free filled reinforcers during your applied behavior analysis and verbal behavior exercises, huh? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and believe me, it's enforced pretty uh, strictly. Even if I tried to, it wouldn't uh, it, it wouldn't get very far. We've got a pretty sophisticated uh, uh, checks and balance with regards to that. So, what are the different applications that you use, and what are Holland's applications for your ABA and verbal behavior uh, exercises? Yeah, I, I think you know, without and, and as we talked to during the break, it, it's probably a long segment, but I think simply stated, I think once you get past the fact that, you know, behavior analysis, you know, is a science that looks at the functional relations between, you know, stimuli and, and environment and behavior responses, I think you get to the place of, of applications are very different, and you get past Skinner's principles of reinforcement and prompting and fading and, and those kind of things. You, you get to a very different application. I, I think there's probably as many applications as there are Pro home and school programs, and, and I think those applications come down to in what sequence you teach and, and to what degree you teach them, what order, what time, what place, what relevance, um, all those kind of things. And, and so we've established a program that allows us to really treat um, every type of learner, at least we try to, from a challenging behavior perspective to a learning language perspective. We, uh, so we, we certainly use a um, Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior often with kids because we find that their language um, is very unique and very separate and doesn't, you know, the traditional language model of what's taught in what order that works for many kids whose language isn't that um, impaired or delayed. It works. So we have a speech pathologist on staff who is who is who is is um, quite sophisticated in both. Skinner's application and a traditional language model because we don't try to say we just do verbal behavior for these kids because if you're a traditional learner, um, the verbal behavior model is less relevant, less necessary. And so um, part of our assessment initially is figuring out for those kids um, you know what? What do they need? You know what? In what order? In what sequence? And certainly, our teaching lines up often with the work of Dr. Patrick McGreevy, Mark Sundberg, Vince Carbone, those kind of people. When we are using a verbal behavior model, but we also use a traditional language model for for certain other kids, and then look at our application of, you know, prompting, reinforcement, fading, schedules, pictures. Those aren't unique to behavior analysis. I think oftentimes people think of that discrete trial as behavior analysis. That's not true. That's just one very um, you know, interesting, critical part of uh, of instruction, but that's not behavior analysis. And so you look at what teachers are doing. You look, and, and many times I'll, I'll close by saying, most people who say they may not like, uh, you know, behavior analysis, what they're probably saying is they don't like the particular application that they're familiar with. All right. Well, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for sharing information about the integrative approach at the Holland Clinic and Center in Minnesota. Thank you. And- thank you for having me. You're welcome. And to our listeners, uh, Dr. Mike Montico and Troy Fry will both be speaking at the Autism One Conference in May. For more information, look soon at www.autismone.org. We should be posting conference information starting in December. To learn more about the Holland Center, please visit www.hollandcenter.com. My guest next week is Laurie Ahern, President of Disability Rights International. Don't forget about the Arizona 5 campaign. The Autism File Global is raising money for legal aid to a family where five children have been taken away. Please visit www.autismfile.com and click on the Arizona 5 icon. 
Thank you to this program's sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.